Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 14. We spent the summer, as uh, many of you know, uh, going through a nuts and bolts series, and uh, last week we jumped back into Matthew uh, chapter 14, and uh, today we're going to pick up in uh, verse 22, and we'll go through the end of the chapter uh, today. So the previous passage, we saw that that Jesus fed thousands of people uh, with just a small amount of food, one of the bona fide miracles that Jesus performed. Prior to this happening, uh, you might recall that Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds because he had just heard some news that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And we see this kind of in this moment, a glimpse of, of the humanity of Jesus um, who of you have gone through a difficult thing where you just don't want to be around anybody? You just want to be you know, by yourself and with your thoughts. And so we see this glimpse of Jesus' humanity, but we also see that the crowd uh, wouldn't let him get away. Jesus tended to, to draw a crowd wherever he went. And so in his attempt to get away, the crowd uh, followed him. And we see that Jesus had compassion on the crowd in the feeding of the thousands of people. And so we see uh, Jesus' divinity at work as well. And so kind of this, we see two sides of Jesus, his humanity and his divinity uh, in last week's passage. Um, As we get into our passage today, we're going to see starting off that Jesus is trying to retreat again. So Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, says immediately, in other words, after the feeding and, the, and everything was done, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat to go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And we'll pause there for just a second. So, so Jesus, I, I don't know, you know what was going on here, but, but he sent the disciples ahead of him in a boat and he stayed to dismiss the crowds, and maybe in his humanity, and still wanting to have some alone time, he took it upon himself to make sure that everybody went home, right? So he could be alone and, and, uh, and do what he needed to do. And so after he had dismissed the crowds, we're told that he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was dark, he was there, or when it was evening, he was there alone. So we don't know how long he was there, but, but this seems to indicate that he was there for a while, this wasn't just, you know, a quick, you know, 10-minute jaunt up the mountain and back down, uh, that he was there uh, for quite a while uh, and praying. And this is maybe a, a bit of a side note. I don't think this is the main point of the text, but, but if, if Jesus needed to be alone to pray, what, what, what does that say to us? You know, we, we need to spend some time in prayer, uh, alone time with God. And I know if you're like me, just, the, you know, the busyness of life can get you and um, you know, I, I tend to kind of, as I go throughout the day, you know, kind of have a dialogue with God and, you know, pray for things as things come up or thoughts, you know, come to mind. Um, but I'm pretty terrible about just getting away and having some alone time. And, and Jesus needed to do that. And if Jesus needed to do that, may, maybe we ought to consider that we might need to do that uh, as well. So do with that what you will. Like I said, not the main point uh, of the text, but Jesus spent some time uh, up on the mountain praying. And then as we get into verse 24, he says, but the boat by this time was a long way away from the land, and it was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, 
Do not be afraid. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you're probably familiar with this story. Maybe you've heard it before, but think about what's happening here and put yourself in this position. I don't know how many of you have ever been on a boat out at sea in rough waters. The closest thing that I've gotten to years ago went deep sea fishing out of Depot Bay. And I don't know if you've been to Depot Bay, but it's like, it's like the smallest bay in the world or there's some kind of claim to fame like that. And we went out and the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed and the <laughs> captain started handing out life jackets on the boat. I don't know how often they do this in deep sea. Like we could see the land. We weren't that far out. But he started handing out life jackets and says like, okay, everybody, you know, below deck. And there were all these fishing boats lined up. They were calling them back in, lined up to the entrance to the bay. And the Coast Guard had, you know, those boats that flip upside down and turn right. So those were the boats that were out. And one of those boats was there. And one at a time, they were telling each boat, go, like gun it and hope you don't crash into the rocks on either side of the opening to the bay. And there were fire trucks and ambulances on the road. Um, like, I mean, they were, they were ready to make a rescue if it happened. A little freaky. We made it okay, obviously, because I'm standing here today. But um, that's the closest I've got. The disciples were out in the sea, and the wind was like, this was the scene, right? If they didn't have life jackets back then to hand out, or they probably would have handed them out at that moment. Jesus, who had been on the mountain, all of a sudden just shows up. Right, So if, if it's not bad enough that, that you're in this kind of freaky situation with the boat, and then all of a sudden Jesus sees somebody walking on the water and they don't know who it is. Now in all of our modern technology today, like we haven't figured out walking on water, right? We just can't do it. This was 2,000 years ago without modern ingenuity. Like this was, I mean, that would freak you out in, in the middle of the night, in the dark, all of a sudden to see a figure walking on the water. And of course, they exclaimed, it's a ghost, and it says they cried out in fear. Well, yeah, I'd be afraid, right? You'd be afraid if there's, there's lots of things going on here, thinking that you're going to die, and then to see this figure in the middle of the night. But immediately, when Jesus heard them cry out, he spoke to them, saying, take heart as I, do not be afraid. Now, there's some comfort here in the midst of their fear, right? But, but their fear is significant uh, at this point. So, so just imagine the scene, put yourself in the middle of this scene as much as you're able to, and what, like, what would be going through your mind right now? Even though the disciples just saw Jesus do a bona fide miracle in feeding a whole bunch of people with just a little bit of food, and that's not the first miracle that they've seen of Jesus, right? They've seen miracle after miracle that Jesus performed, but there's still some fear going on at this scene. And Peter, who up to this point has been, shall we say, less than impressive, Peter's an impulsive guy. Peter, in verse 28, answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, this is a bold statement from Peter. Right again, you know, Peter, as impulsive as he is, um, he, he's demonstrating a little bit of faith, or maybe a lot, maybe a tremendous amount of faith in this moment and saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. In verse 29, he, meaning Jesus, said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. Great moment of faith for Peter. Verse 30, moment of doubt. But when he saw the wind, in other words, when Peter started to look around, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, 
Lord, save me. Moment of faith. Right? Lord, if it's you, come. High faith. Right? Out in the middle of the situation, looking around. Uh, what have I done? I've made a huge mistake. Right? Doubt. Lord, save me. Moment of faith. Right? Up and down and up and down. Right? Can, can you relate to that? That's how our faith often works, right? It's up and it's down. Sometimes it's strong. Sometimes it's weak. So sometimes we wonder if it even exists at all. But Jesus, in verse 31, immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So I want to talk for a moment here about faith and about doubt and about fear and and those kinds of things. We, we tend to think about our faith, like, like we try to quantify our faith. We, we human beings, like we, we like to measure things, we like to count things, and we, we like to quantify. But, but I don't think the faith that God gives us is something to be quantified. Tim Keller talks about having a strong, like if you're dangling from a cliff, having a strong faith in a weak branch in that moment doesn't help you very much. Having a weak faith in a strong branch, now that, that, that's another story, right? And, and so faith, we try to quantify it, but it's not really a quantifiable thing. Our lives, I don't think, are a matter of how much faith we have because maybe in some moments we have a lot and maybe in other moments we don't have so much. But think, think about this. Our whole lives are faith. Everything we do, every moment of every day, is some matter of faith. Right? I go to bed every night with the faith that I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I just assume I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I have a strong faith. I'm most likely, 99.9% chance, I'm waking up tomorrow. Right? I, I go to work on a daily basis, trusting that, like, if I do my job, I'm, I'm going to get a paycheck, right? I have faith in my employer that he's going to reward a job well done. I, I drive to work every day with faith that the cars coming at me aren't going to veer into my lane. I have faith. I have faith that my car is going to work, that my, that my truck is going to get me from point A to point B and not break down, right? Faith. I have faith that when you know, life is tough, that the people that care about me are going to be there for me, right? requires faith. Everything we do in life requires some level of faith in someone or something. So again, I don't think it matters necessarily how much faith we have as much as it matters where we place that faith, right? Do we place our faith in, in weak branches or strong branches? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, defines faith biblically as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, we have to take this in, in the context of the Bible. Like, I hope for a lot of things, right? I hope I might win the lottery one day. Like, that's, that's wishful thinking, nothing more. I have no control over that. It's wishful thinking, right? Think about the things that you hope for. Biblically, what is it that the Christian hopes for? What, what is the Christian hope? The Christian hope is that Jesus is who He says He is. The Christian hope is that Jesus did what He said He did. That's the Christian hope. So when the writer of Hebrews talks about faith being the assurance of things that we hope for, that, that's the context. 
Our hope is that, that God will redeem one day all things, that he'll make every right or every wrong right. He'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no mourning, there'll be no death. That's the hope that we live with, that heaven is real. That's the hope that we have. And so the Christian faith is the assurance that that hope will one day be realized. And it's not an empty hope. It's not a baseless hope. Right? I hope I have a good day today. That, that, that's, again, kind of wishful thinking, maybe a bit of a baseless, like most days are good for me, but I don't have a lot of control over that. Having the assurance that, that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did, that's the hope of the Christian. And the conviction of things not seen, right? We, we can't see God face to face right now. One day the Bible tells us that our faith will be sight. But, but right now our faith is not full sight. Romans chapter 1 tells us, step outside and look around and you can see all of the evidence of God that you need. Right? Just look at, at the beauty of creation. That, that's all the evidence that you need. And if you can't see it, it's because you're, you're ignoring it. So, so we do have limited sight to our faith, right? But, but there's going to come a day for the Christian when we, when we see God face to face and our faith will be fully sight. We'll see what we need to see. So faith being the assurance of things that we hope for and the conviction of things not seen. But then the author of Hebrews goes on a few verses down in chapter 11, verse 6, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So in order to please God, we have, like faith is a requirement. We have to have faith to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who who seek him. So, so, so what is, we, we've defined biblically the, the hope of the Christian, that the faith of the Christian is that what we hope for is true. We have a conviction of things that we can't see. We're told that without this faith, that it's impossible to please God. And whoever would draw near to God, that part of this faith is that you would believe first and foremost that he exists, but that's not enough. That the Bible tells us that the demons believe that God exists. What does that do for them? Right? I, I believe that we put a man on the moon, but does that change my life in any way whatsoever? Not, not at all. I'm glad we did it. Cool thing. Doesn't affect the way that I live. Right? There's lots of things I believe that don't change my life, and that's true for you. So a simple belief in God is not enough. Most people probably, even though it may not seem like it, most people probably believe in the existence of some sort of God, some sort of higher power, some sort of divine being. Most people probably have that kind of a belief. But the author of Hebrews says that, that we also must believe that he rewards those who seek him, Right? What is the reward for the Christian? The reward for the Christian is that we know God. We know God and that heaven is a real thing, that He has chosen those that belong to Him, and that He will, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, spend eternity pouring out His riches towards us in kindness through Christ Jesus. 
That, that's the reward. So belief that God exists is not the same thing as believing that God is good. If we think back to our passage here for a moment where we, where we see fully Jesus' divinity on display, that, that He can walk on water, that He can command nature, who, who can do that? God can do that, right? We see God's sovereignty at work, and we, we, we talk a lot about God's sovereignty here in our church, which is to say that He's everywhere all of the time, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing. Nothing happens outside of His purview. There, there's never a moment in heaven where God is sitting on His throne, scratching His head, thinking, how did that happen? There's never such a moment, ever, anywhere, throughout time and history and what's to come, because God is sovereign overall. But if God is only sovereign, we have a problem, because in His sovereignty, what if He's a tyrant? In His sovereignty, what if He's mean? If in His sovereignty, what if He's vengeful? But sovereign and able to carry out whatever needs to be carried out. But the Christian also believes that God is good. Think about like if God is only good and not sovereign, He might be powerless to affect good. But, but if God is sovereign and God is good, that, that's a comfort for the Christian. That's an absolute comfort for the Christian because the Bible tells us that He is for us. God is sovereign and God is good. And we exercise faith every day in something or someone. So I would maybe ask you to consider this morning, just and maybe you're already thinking about this, what are the things that you put your faith in in any given day from one moment to the next? Or who, who do you put your faith in any given day from one moment to the next? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He's good and He's sovereign. Now, now, where does this faith come from, right? That's kind of worth talking about here for a second. We'll skip down to Hebrews chapter 12, skip down several verses. We're told that, that it's Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we, we take that to mean that our faith originates with Him, right? My faith doesn't originate within me. Your faith doesn't originate within you. And even that's a comfort because God gives us what we need to please Him, right? He makes this requirement that without faith, it's impossible to please Him, okay? And, and, and then He gives us what we need in order to please Him. And that's part of what happens when you, when you become a Christian, right? When, when, when the blinders come off, when the light comes on, and you understand and you believe the truth of the gospel, you, you do so because you've been given faith by God to do that very thing. And so in these moments where Peter steps out of the water and looks around and realizes, what have I done, right? When you have those moments where, you know, maybe you step out in a direction and you think, what have I done, <laughs> right? And you have kind of these low, low moment of doubt where you begin to question. First and foremost, like God can handle our doubt, right? We're, we're, I, don't, I don't think we offend God by our doubt. He does call out Peter, oh, you of 
little faith. And I don't think what he's saying here when he says you have little faith, I don't think he's saying you that doesn't possess very much faith. I don't think he's saying that. Peter, in a moment, took his eyes off of the thing that mattered, right? His faith in that moment, just kind of reading into the text, maybe went away from Jesus, right? Just a moment before, he's like, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come out there, right? And he stepped out and he he took a couple of steps. He got a little ways out of the boat, right? Great faith. In, In that moment, maybe the object of his faith turned to something else after he began to look around and he began to sink, Then he cried out to God, save me, right? Faith went back in the direction that it needed to go, right? So so faith maybe maybe is something more that that we direct more than anything else, and it's directed somewhere all of the time towards someone or something all of the time. God saved him, and then Peter made this confession, or not Peter, the disciples in verse 33, it says that those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And so everybody saw what happened. All of the people in the boat, this wasn't just a story about Peter. Everybody saw what happened, and they got back in the boat, and things calmed down. Think about after a, a moment, right, my, my moment out deep sea fishing, when, kind of when things calmed down, right? The, the conversation in that moment wasn't, wasn't directed at God. It was like, oh man, that, that was crazy. Can you believe that just happened? Don't want to do that again, right? In this, this moment, their, their conversation was directed in worship to God, and they recognized that Jesus is who He says He was and did what He said He would do in that moment. And, and, and all of them, I, I would have to imagine their faith was high at that moment after seeing what they saw, after going through what they went through. And so we see Jesus' divinity fully on display here after witnessing His humanity in the previous section uh, on display. And so we see kind of these dual natures that, that Jesus in His humanity, He can relate to us in our fear. He can relate to us even, even in our doubt. He can relate to us. I think about when Jesus was on His way to the cross, when he, when he prayed in the garden before, remember what He prayed to the Father? Like, if there's any other way, now, now would be a good time to let me know if there's another way to do this, right? And I don't know that that was necessarily doubt, but we see Jesus' humanity, like, this is going to be hard, what's about to happen. Maybe scary, extremely difficult, Right? If there's any other way, tell me now. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus has, has a perfect faith. You and, I, you and I don't have a perfect faith at all. Far from it. Right? Our, our faith, like Peter's, you know, sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low, it's up and it's down. Sometimes it, it feels like it might not even exist at all. God can handle those things. <clears throat> he, he is a worthy object of faith. And I might ask you to consider kind of whatever direction you direct your faith in a given day, in a given moment, are those things worthy objects of faith, right? Are they weak branches or are they strong branches? And we oftentimes tend to put our faith in things that maybe are not worthy objects of faith, things that will let us down. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Do you believe that God is both sovereign and good? If you believe that, you, you will sleep at night far better when you know that, that God sees everything, hears everything, controls everything, and that He's for you. That there's no greater comfort in life. There's no greater assurance that we can have as Christians. Verse 34, <clears throat> when they had crossed over, after they got over the sea, they came to the land at Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And here again, we see another glimpse of just the divinity of Christ, right? Again, Jesus tended to attract crowds wherever he went. So as soon as they got this place called Genesaret, the men of that place recognized him. I don't know how they recognized him. Um, you know, this wasn't back in the day where, you know, somebody could post on social media that Jesus was in town or they had flyers up with his picture or anything like that. So somehow they recognized him. And, the, and word got out to the region, right? Not, not just their town, but like, you know, Jesus, you know, shows up in Sun River and all of a sudden all of Central Oregon knows that Jesus is here, right? And they, they, they flock here. And we see people exercising, this kind of unnamed people, like people that we don't even know, exercising faith. They, they wanted to get just close enough where they could touch his garment. I don't, I don't know what God was doing here, but kind of this weird moment where people could get close enough just to touch him and they were made well. Right? We, we've seen this in Jesus before. Earlier in Matthew, we, we saw where this happened. And so, only the, only the, the divine could do that. Like, that's the only explanation for this is that, that Jesus is divine, right? So we can grab my shirt and nothing's going to happen. But they, they touch the fringe of Jesus' garment and it says, all who were able to do that, as many as touched it, were made well. And again, imagine, like, put yourself in Jesus' position here. Well, what if you were the one that everybody's just trying to touch? That sounds freaky. Like a crowd, crowds and people. I mean, can't even imagine. We, we, see, we see Jesus has compassion on the crowds. He didn't turn them away. He didn't send them home. He didn't say like, okay, everybody stand back. He didn't, we're, we're not privy to that kind of information. It says that all who touched him were made well. So I guess the question for us today again comes back to, do you believe that God is sovereign and do you believe that God is good? Because our Bible tells us that he's both. That's what we see in these passages, His sovereignty and His goodness together. And that, again, should give us great comfort, great hope as Christians, help us sleep at night, lay our head on the pillow, knowing that no matter what's going on in my life, God is for me. And no matter what's going on in my life, that God can handle it even if I can't. Charles Spurgeon, one of his famous quotes is that, if there were any better circumstance for you other than the one that you're in now, without respect to being good or bad, divine love would have you there. If there are any circumstance in your life better than the one that you're in now, divine love would have you there. That's a reference to Romans 8, 28 that says that for those that love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work together for their good. It doesn't mean that everything is good, but it means that God in His sovereignty and God in His goodness can direct even the worst things to work for our good because He loves us, because He is sovereign, 
because he is good, right? And so consider that. Consider that in how you live. Consider that on your best day. Consider that especially on your worst day. And consider that every day in between that God is both good and sovereign and he's working for the good of those that love him and who are called according to his purpose. And if there were any other better plan, it would be unfolding in your life. And so God in his sovereignty has it under control and in his goodness is working for you. Today we get to celebrate communion as we think about these truths, as we think about the God who is worthy of worship, who is worthy of our hope, who is a worthy object of faith. We get to celebrate communion as we think about the lengths to which God went to secure our salvation. As the cup represents the, the shed blood of Christ and the, and the bread represents the broken body of Christ for us. Right? We, we are, by nature, sinners condemned to God's wrath, except that Christ did what he did for us. He's imputed to the Christian his own righteousness, his own perfect record, his own perfect faith. And so as we celebrate communion today, we're reminded that Christ is for us, that he's done for us that which we could and would never do for ourselves. We, we, we wouldn't be able to, and if we were able to, we, we just wouldn't because that, that's who we are by nature. And so we're told in the Bible that when we celebrate communion, that we do it in, in remembrance of Jesus, that we remember his broken body, that we remember his shed blood, that we remember what he's done for us. We remember that the gospel is true. We remember that he's good. We remember his love and his grace and his mercy for us. And so we get to share that together today with one another in remembrance of him. And so uh, just as the music plays, you can come up and grab the elements and go back to your chair and just take them on your own. Uh, And after that's done, uh, we'll sing a song together to close out our service. But I want to pray for us right now. Father, we're grateful this morning um, that you are sovereign and that you are good. We're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that um, you give us what we need to please you, that you give us the faith that we need to please you. And so I would ask for uh, all of us here this morning that you would continue uh, to grow our faith, that you would bolster our faith, that you would increase our faith, that you would help us to be people, even even in our doubts, that we would be able to turn to you Uh, with those doubts and that we would look to you for our comfort, that we would look to you for our peace, that we would look to you for the things that we can't do for ourselves. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.